This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. If you're a regular listener to Office Hours, then you're probably a regular listener to sermons as well. If not, perhaps we should talk about that. You might be a preacher of sermons, either way, at least 52 times a year. And if you add up all the time we spend either preaching or listening to sermons, it comes out to as much as four days out of each year. Either then, as a hearer or a preacher, you are involved with sermons. Yet, despite all the time we spend together preaching and listening to sermons, we Christians are not all on the same page as to what they are. We do not all understand or agree about what is happening in a sermon. So, what is a sermon? Does the minister sit around during the week thinking of clever things to say? Is the sermon instruction in how-to? Is it the minister's opinion, like a one-sided Sunday talk show? Or is it a dramatic presentation, a technical lecture, a Bible study, or just what is going on in a sermon? Julius Kim is Dean of Students and Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, where our primary mission is to educate men to be preachers of the Word of God. He has spent many years helping men learn to preach, and he's author of a new book, Preaching the Whole Counsel of God, Design and Deliver Gospel-Centered Sermons. This, with other faculty volumes, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Julius, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. We Christians spend a good bit of our life either producing or consuming sermons, but we're not always sure exactly what they're supposed to be. So, what is a sermon? That's a good question. I suppose I can give you the technical answer that I put in the book, but essentially what I try to tell my students is if you were to compare it perhaps to the other activity that they'll be primarily engaged in, that is teaching Bible studies, preaching a sermon is essentially very different because in addition to explaining the text and helping applying, it's more than that. It's interpretation of the text, it's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's explanation of what the text is about, but ultimately it's application of all of those truths essentially through the gospel to the lives of our people in the church, both sinners and saints. And so preaching a sermon is a little bit more than just teaching a Bible study. So it's announcement? Proclamation is the okay. word I use. Proclamation yeah. and also application. That's right. So if you have only application— then do you really have a sermon? No, not at all. And I think an image might be helpful here. I start my lectures in my first year preaching class, helping my students with an image that might be helpful for them in understanding the difference, let's see, between a teacher of a Bible study and what I call a herald of a sermon. We've lost that image, I think, in our modern days, but uh, perhaps the closest thing we might think of is like the town crier during the medieval time or later periods. When we have fires here, sometimes they send emergency vehicles down the road and they blare announcements out of the vehicle saying, time to move. That's exactly right. That's a perfect, uh, perhaps modern day illustration of what a herald does, is to announce impending news of not only doom or danger, like fire, but also news of great joy, like the coronation of a new king, a victory at war. In the first century, that was the image, I think, that the New Testament authors used to describe the person and work of a preacher. It was actually a herald specifically commissioned by the king to represent him. They were trained at an early age, and they had tremendous 
power and authority because he had the power and authority of the king because they were carrying the words of the king. But that also came with a lot of responsibility as well. And so not just everybody signed up to be a herald. You can't run around saying, I just beat my buddy at such and such a game. That's right. It's not about personal stuff. It's, it's about not. official proclamation. So it has to have proclamation, but if it only has proclamation and it doesn't have application, is it a sermon? If it only has proclamation or explanation, let's say, of the text, what's the difference between reading a commentary? There are wonderful biblical scholars out there that have written great books. So should we just go up to the pulpit, open up to that particular section, and start proclaiming the wonderful truths of that text as a commentarian would, or a person writing a commentary would? Of course not. So it's much more than that. And so it's proclamation plus application. And you've already touched on this, but let's nail it down. What is a preacher? You've already suggested he's a person who's trained. He's a person with authority. That's right. Perhaps if I can add to that definition, a preacher is a God-appointed and gifted, but also church-approved man who heralds the Word of God with truth and goodness and beauty. So a fellow who decides that he is a preacher, you know, spends some time studying Scripture and then begins going around preaching, is he really a preacher. He, he feels a, a sense of internal call, and maybe he can gather a crowd. And so some of the things that we associate with preaching are present, but is he really a preacher? I don't think so, because throughout the Old and New Testament, we have both prophets in the Old and preachers in the New that were always appointed and gifted by God, but ultimately confirmed and affirmed by the church, the people of God. And so you have this both internal call that needs to be there, of course, the gifting, the desire, but also the external call or the accountability, the testing of the church saying, yes, this man has been approved based on the qualifications of Scripture to be able to represent God himself. This is the part that we Americans frequently struggle with. We like the internal part. We like the gifting part. But the church part, the external recognition of gifts and calling and the discipline and the training, we bristle against that. Why do we struggle so with that part of it? The easy answer, perhaps, is that's just our human nature. We don't like people telling us what to do or what to be. But at the end of the day, if you understand what you're actually doing and who you're representing, that much more you would want that kind of accountability, resource, training, help, and actually discipline at times because we don't have it all figured out. So we need the help of the church to help us and to protect us and God's people from ourselves sometimes. And so I would think that wisdom by itself would tell us, hey, don't do this on your own. But more so than that, I think it's in God's word. God's word actually tells us that this is the way the church ought to function. So you wouldn't go to a guy, let's say there's a guy who did well in high school biology. And of all the people in the class, he was the best at dissecting frogs. And you think, well, you know, I might need surgery. Uh, and, you know, he's a pretty handy fellow with a scalpel. And, you know, he, he really likes doing that. And um, I'll just go to him. You know, we'll rub some, you know, topical painkiller on there and I'll let him do that. You wouldn't do that, would you? Absolutely not. That's a great analogy. I use that analogy in class as well. We talk about how we even look at, when we go to our doctor's office, where he graduated, where he got his degrees, did he pass his board exams, etc. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting there. We have certain expectations of those who take care of our bodies. How much more then should our expectations be even higher for those who take care of our souls that are eternal? So that much more we need to take care in ensuring that our preachers have the kind of training and approval by seminaries as well as the church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What is the preacher's first duty 
in creating a sermon. Before he does anything else, what must he do? In my humble opinion, it's pray. It's a spiritual act. And from the beginning of understanding the word to putting the sermon together to then ultimately preaching it and then hoping and praying that people will be changed by that, that's a spirit led, spirit-infused activity. So it's the height of arrogance and ignorance to somehow think that without God's aid through the Holy Spirit that we can somehow do this activity. That's just foolishness. So prayer, no question, prayer. It involves skill. It involves study. But it involves the Spirit. So it's utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. So all the skill, all the study, all the rhetorical gifts in the world are nothing if the Holy Spirit isn't operating through that event, through that proclamation. That's right. That's right. It's a Holy Spirit activity. And if he's not present, it's like a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal, right? We can sound real pretty, but if the Holy Spirit is not present, nothing's going to happen. So we have to pray at the very beginning of our study, Lord, help me to understand your word. Illuminate the word to my mind and activate it in my heart and in my life. May the word transform me first as I study it, so that as I then preach it, you would use the word, and somehow this foolish preacher, as he preaches, somehow you would use this seemingly foolish means to bring about life from the dead. And the very act of preaching, well, and the message, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing, those who don't believe, those whose minds have not been illuminated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, whose hearts and wills. But you and I know as preachers from experience, the very act of standing in a pulpit and expositing a text and announcing and applying and doing all the things that we do in front of a congregation that's full of people from two years old, three years old, all the way up to the 80s and 90s, from all different backgrounds and maybe socioeconomic conditions and cultural backgrounds and linguistic backgrounds and all of those variables. And here we are announcing and expositing and applying an ancient text. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, that would be a remarkably inefficient way to try to communicate with people. There's no question about it. And that's why in this day and age, that's been inundated by technology. And our young people, especially, I worry about our young people who don't have the ability to fulfill a clear sentence, but then listen to a clear presentation of the message of God or the Word of God in a sermon, I worry because we're increasingly becoming a people that have failed to understand the importance of this seemingly foolish act of taking this ancient Word and bringing it to bear upon people's lives. And yet, in God's mysterious and marvelous providence, that's what He has deigned the proper channel in which the gospel goes forth and changes people's lives. And so what do we do? We obey as good heralds. Lord, if this is your way, I don't care about my way. We're going to do it your way because it's worked. Frankly, it's worked. Well, the church is still here. I mean, that's right. That's the remarkable thing. I mean, whole governments have tried to wipe out the church. There are people and governments and movements around the globe, even now, seeking to destroy Christianity actively. And yet, even in those places, it persists and in some cases flourishes, and usually through the proclamation of the word. That's so right. it is a divinely ordained means, however foolish it might seem to us. That's right, because the word is living and active. Every time we go to the pulpit, we actually believe that, that through the preaching, the faithful preaching of the word, and of course other means like the sacraments, God is actually present by faith and can change lives. And it has changed lives for millennia. And so if that's the way God has done it, we're going to continue to do it today, do it as faithfully as possible. So the next thing the preacher does after he prays, he opens his Bible, and then what? Yeah, you're going to have to take my class for that, Scott. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I can't give you away all my secrets or buy my book. And the title of that book is? It's called Preaching the Whole Counsel of God. 
And it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore and other fine booksellers everywhere. That's right. That's right. I think Amazon has it on sale as well as you can go straight to the Zondervan website. All right. So what makes a sermon different from other kinds of communication. There are other forms of mass communication. We sit and we watch now during the election season, politicians and candidates making long speeches. How do they differ? Yeah, that's a good question. Without getting too technical, let me begin by saying that there's a wonderful part of the Second Helvetic Confession that says that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And of course, by that, we don't mean that every preacher is pronouncing new revelation or something like that. But I think what the confession there is trying to argue is that the faithful interpretation, exposition, and application of God's Word to God's people through the power of the Spirit received by faith changes lives. It's actually the Word of God. It's as if God is speaking. Again, that image of a herald. When the herald spoke, everybody knew that was not the king. He didn't have a crown on his head or a scepter in his hand. But when he spoke... It actually had the power and authority of the king himself. Similarly, when we go to our pulpits and faithfully preach God's word, it is as if God is speaking to you and to me. I think that's where it's preaching is so different from any other kind of communication. It's a very special spirit-anointed act where God himself is speaking to his people. Great minds think alike. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking about the Second Helvetic Confession and had it up here on the screen in front of me. This is from chapter one, and I'll read just a little bit. It says, Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful, and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor to be expected from heaven. And that now the word itself, which is preached, is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. So what makes the sermon, and in a sense the minister, is the word. That's right. That's a wonderful definition. It's chock full of a lot of parts we've already talked about in a real nice summary form. But essentially, it's based upon the reliability, the sufficiency of the Word of God to be able to do what it's made to do. And so if the Word gives life, especially through the means of preaching, and then that's what we continue to do to this day and forever. You write much about preaching Christ, the necessity of preaching Christ. So the question comes, must the preacher preach Christ every Sunday? And isn't that boring? Isn't it narrow? And one might even ask, isn't the Bible about a lot more than Christ? Yeah, those are great questions. I would probably begin to answer that question by saying we have to define what it means to preach Christ. It's not narrow. You have to use the word Jesus five times in every sermon. That's not what we're talking about. It's essentially a hermeneutic or an interpretive understanding of the Scripture. Here at Westminster, we believe that the Bible is essentially one story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God creating and redeeming his people through his primary agent of salvation, Jesus Christ. And so all the disparate parts of the Bible, whether it be the law in Genesis or the songs in Psalms or the stories of Jesus in the Gospels or Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament era, all of those pieces, though they come from different times and places and even in different languages— essentially are about one primary story, the story about Jesus who has come. 
God in the flesh to save you and I from our sin. So if that's the case, preaching Christ essentially means first to interpret every passage of Scripture in light of this broader narrative of God's redemptive history. And then secondly, proclaiming that message from that text so that people can see clearly the gospel from that text, wherever it may be. So it's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance of interpretation and communication of Christ. But it's also preaching the text as it was originally given to the original hearers, let's say Israel, during the wilderness wanderings. But at the same time, showing how later on in time and space and history, God had a design. That story of Israel in the wilderness actually is pointing forward to our wanderings because of sin and our need for a Savior. And so it's that balance that we're talking about that's preaching Christ. So is it boring or narrow? Absolutely not. That's the king's message. It's the most exciting message that's ever been penned in the history of mankind. And doesn't the Bible preach or talk a lot more about Christ? Absolutely. There's a lot of details, a lot of stories, wonderful things, a lot of unique stories and elements. But what I'm talking about is the bigger picture, the big umbrella that covers all the different stories of the Bible. And that's the story of Jesus. And so our job is to tell the old, old story, the old, old story of Jesus time and time again. Because I don't know about you, Scott, I'm sure you'd agree with me, but that's what I need every Sunday. Actually, I need it every day. I need the gospel every day. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church There are people, however, who argue that it's artificial and that they want to say or do say that there is something else that unifies all of Scripture. For example, there's a school of thought that says Scripture is unified by a story about national Israel. And Jesus is important, but he's not really the center. And so isn't this really a discussion, a debate about what organizes Scripture? Maybe we could put it this way. Does Moses work for Jesus or does Jesus work for Moses? That's true. That's true. And if Moses is my hero, then I'm in big trouble. If David is my hero, I'm in big trouble. Because they were, while great leaders of their nation, they were flawed men that ultimately needed Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it talks about these wonderful saints in the Old Testament that were looking forward to the greater one to come. And so all of their lives were built on this hope of the Messiah, the hope of the gospel to come. Now, unlike the Old Testament saints who looked forward, we look back at Calvary. We look back at the cross and say, that's where our hope, that's where our joy and confidence comes, is in the finished work of Jesus. Now, are there implications of that to other areas? Like you talked about national Israel, let's say politics, to family life, to the way we run our churches. Absolutely. The Bible has wonderful things to say about that. But if we just make it that, then we lose sight of the divine author's central purpose, which is to introduce us to his son, our Savior Jesus. 
So it's not the case that if you're preaching Christ from all of Scripture and you're preaching Christ ultimately in every sermon, that you are only doing that and not doing anything else. It's not an either or, is another way of saying. It's not an either or, but a both and. And perhaps there are some preachers out there who are well-intentioned, who want to preach Christ-centered sermons, but essentially what they do is they don't spend a lot of time preaching the text, the unique text as given. And so what they do is just kind of make some mention of the text, but then they spend the rest of the time just talking about Jesus. Now, between you and me, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, you could do worse. You could do worse than telling me the story of Jesus over and over again. But at the same time, as heralds, we're also called to represent what the king wrote through his agents, his writers, whether they be prophets of the old or the gospel writers in the new. God used these men through the Spirit divinely to write these wonderful books of the Bible for our growth and edification, as well as for our salvation. So it's a both and proposition, essentially, is what we're trying to do here. Both preaching the text and it's all of its uniqueness and variety and depth and beauty, but also preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its depth and beauty. And through the text. That's right. So you still agree with R.B. Kuyper that the minister's job is to preach the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text. And if we believe that the text, the whole text, nothing but the text talks also about Jesus, then we have to be faithful to the text. So you're not preaching everything all the time. You're preaching Christ as this particular text leads us to him. That's exactly right. And Lord willing, for many of us who are in the pastoral ministry, it's impossible to preach the whole Bible every Sunday. But in a sense, that's kind of what you're doing. You're giving the whole Bible story when you preach the gospel, but you're doing it through the lens of this unique text as given, this passage that God has given you to give to your people, whether it be a story in the gospels, a miracle story in the gospels, or a story of Israel in the New Testament, or a psalm of Israel in this altar. So let's say a preacher has an Old Testament text before him, and he's working on it. What kinds of qualities would make a good sermon from the Old Testament? And then on the other side, what kinds of things should a preacher avoid as, say, he's preaching a narrative text, say, Judges? We can get caught in the weeds here because we can talk a lot of details about the interpretation of those particular narratives and judges. But essentially, the preacher's task, if I can just kind of boil it down, is to discover the truth of that text as it was originally given by the author to his primary audience. That's part of our job is to understand that. And so let's take the book of Judges. When the Judges was written, who was it written by? Who was it written for? And in this particular story, what is the story about? Who are the characters? What is the plot? And once you start to analyze that linguistically through genre, literary genre of narrative, that is plot structure, etc., as well as life setting, the occasion and purpose, you start to come down to this kind of central purpose and meaning of the text. What is a text about? You have to answer that question. Then why was it given? For what purpose? And then you start getting into the real central truth of that text that you're going to work with to try to apply it to your people. But that's the first part. It's that discovering of the text, discovering of the truth of the text according to the original author to the original audience. But then you take it to the next level. Based on that, then you start asking questions about redemptive history, biblical theology. That is, how does this text fit in the broader narrative of God's intentions of bringing salvation to his people, be it Israel in the book of Judges or us here in the 21st century? And that's what I call discerning Christ in the text according to the divine author. So we're doing justice to the human author as well as doing justice to the divine author, preaching the truth of the text in the original setting and explaining that, proclaiming that, but then also getting to the gospel. And that's really one of the first things you need to do is that interpretive act 
that interpretive skill involved in understanding the text as it was given and then hopefully getting to the sermon from there. Would you be satisfied with a sermon that said, look, here's the life of Samson and you should be like Samson? Would I be satisfied? Absolutely not. Why not? First of all, because Samson, as an example, is a horrible example. (laughs) Let's be honest. But let's use something a little bit more challenging. Let's say a good example. Let's say the character of David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Let's take some of the better qualities of him, or let's take a story of David where he slays the giant. What a wonderful story of conquering our fears, of being courageous. And one can easily take that story. This has happened in my life in Sunday school, where we read the story, and then the Sunday school teacher, with wonderful intentions, basically says, dare to be like Daniel, or dare to be like David here. What are the Goliaths in your life? Exactly. What are the obstacles that you have to overcome? And people like that, preachers will get rewarded for asking and answering that question. And it's not an altogether false question, but it's a misleading question. That's exactly right. There's nothing wrong with trying to help our people understand their fears and to overcome them through the power of God. But is it ultimately about them or is it ultimately about what God does through them? Is the Bible fundamentally about me or is the Bible fundamentally about Jesus? So however you answer that question, that's really going that's to the shape key. your preaching. That's the key, I think. That's really the simple key. If the Bible is fundamentally about me, then I'm in big trouble. And then frankly, Christianity is no different from any other religion that basically says, you have to work harder to get to God. But Christianity is the one religion that says, remarkably, you can't get to God. God will come to you. So you want to distinguish as all the Protestant reformers and all the reformed theologians in the 16th and 17th centuries said, and even the reformed churches, you want to distinguish between law and gospel. And if the Bible is about my doing, then we've really turned the whole story into law. But if the Bible is fundamentally about God's doing for us and coming to us, then however much law there is in Scripture— There is also this other message. That's right. And I think that's just the way we're hardwired, unfortunately. I think we want people to tell us what to do. We want more law. It'll be a lot easier for me to just look at all the sinners in my congregation and say, you need to do this better, you need to do that better, or you're not doing this good enough. Work on that, work on that, let's pray and take the offering. And which is all true. Absolutely. But apart from the gospel, it's an incomplete message. It doesn't tell the whole story. And what it does is it leaves people even more burdened. So they leave the church maybe a little fired up and so like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. Then they get home and on the drive home, they yell at the guy who cut them (laughs) off on the road or they yell at their kids who are fighting in the back. They fight with their spouse. They have bad thoughts about their boss who's mean. And then you're back to square one. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. So that kind of fired up leads to burned out. That's exactly right. The more burden, we just burden our people with the law, and that'll just burn them out. And essentially what they're going to say, Christianity is not for me. And what they're doing is they're not getting the true Christianity that we need to give through the gospel. But as you know, there's also the danger of when you just preach the gospel without the law, let's say the third use of the law, as we like to call it, and then it could potentially lead to antinomianism. It's that wonderful art and science of balancing law and gospel but also then preaching the gospel in such a way so it doesn't lead to either licentiousness on the one hand or legalism on the other. So just that balance, I think, is also very important. That's what we're trying to teach here. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
And you have a section in the book on the three uses of the law. So there are these categories that we've always used for hundreds and hundreds of years that are very helpful that the preacher needs to know as he works out the sermon. So we've spent a lot of time talking about content, but your book is equally as emphatic about and interested in the art of delivering a sermon. That's right. In communication. So why is communication so important? On the internet, they say content is king. Isn't that true for preaching? Can you just focus on the stuff and let the Holy Spirit take care of how it goes in terms of communication? Those are good questions and comments. Let me just begin by talking about content as king. That piqued my interest. The internet is such a very different medium, and it's doing something very different. The internet, first of all, is not a herald of the king. The way it transfers information is very different. The preaching event or the preaching act is a communicative act, essentially. We're getting to the pulpit and using our words and our bodies, our facial features, et cetera, to communicate a message. I don't know if you've read some of these statistics, but we give off as humans way more nonverbal messages than we do verbally in the tens of thousands in our proper communication. And those of us who are married know that because our wives can give us a look and it communicates multiple paragraphs of information that she doesn't even need to say. And we know exactly what she means and we respond. And so that's just an example of how even communication is such a powerful medium. If that's the case, and if this is the way God has created us, and if God's intention is for us to communicate through preaching, then how much more do we need to take care in the way we communicate? So my book is essentially divided into two parts. The first part is more on the interpretation. The second part is on communication. So I talked earlier in this interview about discovering the truth of the text according to the human author and discerning Christ in the text according to the divine author. We transition to the second half of the book to talk about design and delivery. So the third section of my book is called Designing a Sermon According to Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. And the fourth part of my book is called Delivering the Sermon for Maximum Attention, Retention, Integration, and Transformation. And so all that to say is communication is absolutely vital in the preaching act. And so what I'm trying to do is balance that in this one preaching textbook. We talk all the time about television stories, series, having an arc. Do sermons also have an arc, a shape? You know, I try to argue in the book that that's actually one way in which you can communicate or design a sermon. And I find it to be one of the more compelling ways to be persuasive and to tell a story. When you mention arc, we're talking about narrative arc. Some of us know about this because we've studied this, but most of us have experienced it when we watch a really good movie or we read a wonderful book or a story. Whether it's a children's story or a blockbuster movie in our theaters, every good story has this kind of narrative arc where there's a conflict that comes into the story, some sort of tension that needs to be resolved. And then the story goes on, there's some sort of climax where something comes to a head, and then there's a resolution to the rest of the story. That's kind of the arc that we're talking about that good stories all follow. Aristotle called it the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so what I try to argue in the book is that I think our preaching and our sermons can be designed in such a way so that you introduce essentially a problem through the preaching, that every text has some sort of problem. Brian Chapel calls it the fallen condition focus. Lutherans call it the law that's in the text. And so somehow we need to help our listeners understand and come to grips with There's an issue here that needs to be solved. And by the way, you're a part of this. How are we going to solve this problem? So you create this kind of dissonance, some problem, even in the sermon, so that by the time the sermon goes on, you're needing some sort of resolution. And then by the time you bring in the solution to the problem, which is essentially the gospel, people are like, oh... And so the sermon arc can be designed so that you introduce a problem and then you solve it through the gospel, then you try to apply it throughout the sermon. 
that's just a really simplistic way of talking about it. But that's what I try to introduce in the book as one way of designing a sermon. You want preachers, be they student preachers or mature ministers of the word, to be intentional in their rhetorical strategies, in their communication strategy, just as intentional and disciplined at that as they are in doing their biblical exegesis, their biblical theology, and all of the stuff they do in the preparation of the sermon. Absolutely. That's actually the word I use. Great minds do think alike. Throughout my lectures and throughout my time coaching the students in my preaching labs, I talk about intentionality and to not to leave kind of like things to chance under the guise of I'm just letting the Holy Spirit do its work. I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that's a fallacious argument. That's basically saying, Lord, I'm only going to take care of half the thing. The other half you have to take care of, even (laughs) though God has given us all of these abilities and skills and gifts to steward. I'm going to go on a long trip, but I'm not going to check the tires. I'm going to let the inflation of the tires, I'm going to leave that to God. I will check the oil and you know, make sure that the fan belt is on, but the rest of that, Lord, you can take care of. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. And unfortunately, a lot of young preachers here at the seminary, for good reasons, focus so much on content, they forget about proper communication. And I guess that's why they're here. And I'm glad they're here because I get them the opportunity to help them think through and practice not only their content, but also their communication. And they do learn, right, from the time they come in from that first class where they deliver that first laboratory sermon to the final course. You do see real progress and polishing so that by the end, I know when I see them going to class in a suit and tie, well, okay, this fellow is going to give a laboratory sermon. And at the end, you see real progress, don't you? No question. That's probably one of the most rewarding parts of my calling here at the seminary, because I get to teach the very first preaching class, the preaching lab, which takes place in the spring. It's called Sermon Preparation and Delivery. And you know, like a good bell curve, you get a few exceptional students that have had some experience in the past, or just some naturally gifted communicators. And then you have a few that really need some work. But a lot of them are in that kind of that big middle part. But by the time you get to the senior year, and I teach the last semester preaching class, which is called Preaching and Congregational Life, there are times where I actually stop, put my pen down, and just listen because I'm being so encouraged. I'm being so edified. And I actually think to myself, I could sit under this preaching, me and my family. And to have these young men grow in their knowledge, experience, and to see the hard work that they've put in bear fruit like this is so encouraging. They're starting to make that transition in terms of relationship that I have with them from professor to student to now co-laborers in the pastoral ministry. What can be greater than to see that kind of growth? And that's kind of hard to share. And so really what I like to say is the best advertising that we have for the seminary are these guys toiling away faithfully, preaching the gospel with clarity, with cogency, but also with compassion in their small churches, wherever they may be around the world. To me, that's one of the greatest parts of my job here is to see that growth and to see that development in our young preachers. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.